0: This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 14 to 29. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. This morning, I want to speak to you a sermon that's entitled, Chaos in the Valley. Chaos in the Valley. Mark chapter 9, let's begin at verse 14. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, "It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this morning our prayer is that you will help me to preach your word to your people on this day. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. You may be seated. One of the reasons I believe the Bible to be true is because of its realistic presentation of humanity. What I mean is this, that the scripture never glosses over the blunders of the people of God. You read in the scripture and you see the warts in all of the biblical characters. I've told you before that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. We do not look into the page of the Bible and find examples of people showing us how we ought to live. No, actually, we look into the pages of the Bible and we find examples of people showing us how we actually live. And so you come to the scripture and you see the disciples in all of their flimsy faith. And you see Jesus who displays his power that is overwhelming. In the previous passage, Jesus and Peter, James and John have been on the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus had taken the inner circle up that high mountain, and there his face was transfigured. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. All of a sudden, there were two celestial citizens that showed up on that mountain, Moses and Elijah, They appeared in their glorious splendor, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, for Jesus is a fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. We are told that they spoke to Jesus about his upcoming departure, his exodus, what would soon take place in Jerusalem on a hill outside of the city at the place called Calvary. And there they talked about how Jesus had come to seek and to save that which is lost. It was Peter who wanted to get in on the scintillating conversation. He offered a suggestion. Let's make an altar, a shelter, a place where we can memorialize both uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. No sooner had he spoken that than a cloud appeared and out of that cloud came the booming voice of God. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. No sooner had The voice of God spoke in that, that the cloud lifted and Peter, James, and John looked around and Jesus was there all by himself. Mark's way of telling us that Jesus is in a class all by himself. For what God the Father was saying is it's Jesus, not Moses, who is Christ. It is Jesus, not Elijah, who is Christ. It is Jesus, not anybody else who is Christ. For Jesus is Christ all by himself. What Peter had confessed earlier, heaven now confirmed. Jesus is Christ. One thing about the mountain that you can't live there. We wish we could. We wish we could live on top of the mountain. We wish we could live in those monumental moments of ministry. But oftentimes, we visit the mountain only to have to retreat back into the valley. But those mountaintop moments, they are memorable. I think that Peter, James, and John never forgot it. In fact, there are two letters that bear the name of Peter in our New Testament. And in 2 Peter, the author says that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard his voice on that sacred mountain. I'm convinced that Peter is referring to the mountain of transfiguration. I also think that in the opening chapter of John's gospel, when John says we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth. I think that John is referencing the mountain of transfiguration, that moment when the veil of humanity was lifted of Jesus and what was shining through was the raw radiance and the glorious splendor of his divinity. I think that John and Peter and James, I don't think they ever forgot this monumental moment. But they had to be thrust back into the valley. All of us have that, don't we? We have a mountaintop experience, and then we have to go down into the valley, and no sooner had they traveled down the mountain, there was pandemonium and there was chaos. We are told that the scribes are on the scene. Mark uh, tells us that the teachers of the law were there. Elsewhere, they're called scribes. Normally, when the scribes show up, uh, they are there to uh, question the ministry of Jesus, to defend the status quo of first century Judaism or to call into question and criticize the authority of our Lord and so the scribes are there and with frustration and anger etched on their faces they are wagging pointed fingers in the faces of those other disciples those other disciples they're not taking it they're dishing it right back And and they're coming back at those scribes and and they've got their eyes popping, neck vein bulging intensity in their conversation. And then you've got uh, crowds that are crushing around them and and they're taking sides. And some of the crowd are are vying with uh, the, the scribes and others are defending the disciples and there's sheer pandemonium. As they make their way down into this chaotic valley, there is sheer pandemonium. And I suspect... That Peter, James, and John thought, can we just turn around and go back up? I mean, we just saw Christ and now we're coming into this chaos. We just had a spectacular moment and now we're coming in all this stress. We just saw you as the mighty Messiah and now we've got to step foot in this mess. We just saw you in all of your glory, and now we're coming to this humanity of glory. I mean, Lord Jesus, can we just turn around and go back? It always surprises me how quickly we can be thrust back into the valley. It doesn't take very long, does it? To be cast back down into the cussing and the fussin, back into the arguing and the frustration that is so part and parcel with our human condition, so normal in our lives. I mean, we can have a, a wonderful worship experience and it doesn't take much longer than the car ride from church to Cozumel to be thrust back into the valley. I mean, you're sitting there and your children in the back and they're fighting and arguing and you say, "Look, just sit down, shut up, don't say anything. We're Christians and we love Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take very long at all for us to be thrust back into the chaos of the valley. We can have a, a great Meaningful moment on Sunday, and what's going to await us Monday morning? Chaos. Back into the workplace, back into the grind, back into that place that just thrust us right back into sheer pandemonium. It doesn't take long. Maybe it's the next week after a D Now experience, a conference, a convention, um, perhaps a uh, a revival experience. It doesn't take very long for us to be thrust back into the valley. You and I visit the mountain. We live in the valley, but oh, how we wish We could just visit the valley and live on the mountain, because it's sheer pandemonium. This is the sight and sound. This is the scene that the disciples, the inner circle and Jesus experienced as they made their way down the mountain of Transfiguration into the valley. When the crowd saw that Jesus had arrived, it was like a rock star had finally come. They were so excited and enthused and with great joy and exuberance, they made a mad dash to Jesus. This morning, I just rejoice that Jesus is willing to step into my valley. I'm just glad that Jesus is willing to come down into my mess and stress. I'm glad that he comes down into your sin and suffering. I'm glad that he comes and dwells amongst us in the middle of headache and heartache. I'm glad that Jesus comes into our mess. The gospel is the story of the self-movement of God. It is not that God demands us to come to him. Oh no, the gospel story tells us that God came down to us. It's the self-movement of God. It is God taking the initiative. It's, it's God accomplishing our salvation. It is God who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, and Jesus willingly and joyfully comes down into our valley. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that Jesus comes and dwells in our chaos. That could be a good word for somebody today. You may be stuck in the middle of something. And you think to yourself, you're the only one who's thinking this, feeling this, or experiencing this. And that's just the lie and lure of the adversary. The reality is, there are probably many people that experience the very same thing that you experience. But still, here you are, and you're you're dragging something into church. Something is dragging you into church. And here you are, and you wonder if Jesus can help. You wonder if Jesus can fix it. My friend, this morning, I want you to know that Jesus joyfully stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth and dwells in the chaos of your valley. Whenever this thought dawns on me it causes me to remember those ancient words of that great hymn I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how he can love me a sinner condemned unclean but oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful and my song shall ever be oh how marvelous oh how wonderful is my Savior's love for me I don't know about you but I rejoice today that Jesus comes and dwells In the valley of chaos with you and with me. Jesus goes up to the disciples and the scribes and he just simply asks the question, what are you guys arguing about? I don't know exactly who the question is posed to. I don't know if he's asking the disciples. I don't know if he's asking the scribes. But I know that both of them have dumbfounded silence. They do not answer. Neither the scribes nor the disciples say a word. Jesus asks the question, what are you guys arguing about? And it's a man in the crowd. Who provides the background story this man comes up to jesus and says sir i came and brought my son my precious son he is possessed by a spirit that spirit has robbed my boy of speech there are many times when that spirit will overwhelm my son and throw him to the ground he'll convulse become rigid roll around he foams at the mouth to be honest, Jesus, I came looking for you, but your disciples said that you were up on that mountain and you'd be back at some point. They asked me, is there anything we can do for you? And so Jesus, I told them about my son. Now, they were quite confident that they could fix it. They said, we can cast out that demon. And Jesus, I want you to know they tried and they tried hard, but they failed. And so when they failed, these teachers of the law and scribes, they began to point a finger at your disciples and they began to question "By what authority did you even think that you could cast out that demon? And, And those disciples, they responded back and we got people in the crowd that are siding with the scribes. We got other people that are siding with your disciples. I mean, everybody's just yelling and shouting and screaming and Jesus, I just got a son that I want healed. And Jesus looks at the crowd. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long am I going to be with you? I'm not going to be here very long. Why? Why? Why don't you believe in me? Why don't you believe what I can do? Bring me the boy. So they, they brought that boy with the evil spirit. And once that evil spirit saw Jesus, that evil spirit overwhelmed that boy, threw him to the ground, had him roll around, foam at the mouth, And Jesus asked the father the question, how long has your boy been doing that? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is asking a question he knows the answer to before he asks it. This is Jesus we're talking about. So Jesus asked the dad, how long has your boy been doing that? Why did he ask that question? Well, it was John MacArthur who said that the reason Jesus asked that question was because Jesus wanted to make sure that the father knew that the father was coming to a person, not a power. That when that father was bringing his son to Jesus, that Jesus was more than a Christological cab driver. He's more than just getting us from point A to point B. That Jesus is greater than an ecclesiastical bellhop. He doesn't just exist to do our bidding. That Jesus is, is greater uh, than uh, sanctified Santa Claus, that all the reason he exists is to give us the toys and the gifts that we desire. Jesus is more than the divine vending machine in the sky. John MacArthur said that Jesus wants this father to know when you come to me, I'm so much more than a power. I am a person and Jesus wants to engage this man in a personal relationship. So how long has he been like this? It's one thing to come to Jesus and just say, I just want you to fix my problem. And Jesus says, listen, you're treating me as if I'm some type of commodity, some type of power that you can harness. I am so much more than a power. I am the person of eternity. I am the savior of the cosmos. And I want a personal relationship with you. So he engages him in conversation. How long's the a boy been like this? Well, since childhood, he said. It's not uncommon for us to walk past a fire and that evil spirit will overwhelm my son and try to throw him into the fire. Not uncommon for us to walk past a lake and for the evil spirit to convulse him and try to cast him into the water. He's been trying to kill him for years. Oh, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because after all, the purpose of the adversary, the demonic, is to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus will say elsewhere, I have come to give life more abundant and free. So it's not uncommon. It's not surprising to us. It wasn't surprising to Jesus. So the father just sat there and said, listen, if if you can, will you just please have pity on us? And I think that Jesus stood back just a bit. If you can, he said. If, if you can? Are you? Now listen, I want you to know I'm a person, but I've got unlimited power. If you can? Everything is possible to those who believe. Everything is possible for him who believes. The father says, help my unbelief. I do believe. I believe that you can. You're the person with all the power. I believe that you can. So please help my unbelief. Jesus saw that the crowd was making their way over and Jesus commanded for the evil spirit to leave this boy, never to return to him. And the evil spirit shrieked threw the boy on the ground. He became as rigid as a corpse. And everybody said, well, that did it. He's dead. It's over. And Jesus just reached over and touched the boy, helped him up by the hand. The crowd went crazy. Jesus had done the impossible. Apparently, Jesus and the disciples then uh, went indoors. The disciples come up to him. Jesus, why couldn't we drive out the demon? Friend, that's a great question. The reason it's such a great question is because just three chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus gave those same disciples power and authority, and he sent them out. And Mark says that they went and they preached the gospel of repentance. They drove out many demons They anointed the sick and healed them. I've never known the Bible to exaggerate. I've never known the Bible to stretch the truth. So when the Bible says that these same disciples in Mark chapter 6 have been given the authority by Jesus and they went out and successfully drove out many demons, I've got to assume that means they drove out many demons. Numerous demons have been cast out by their prayers, by their hands, by their command. Many demons have been cast out. And they come up to Jesus and they're deflated. They come up to Jesus inside the house, indoors, and they ask the question, why couldn't we drive out that demon? We've done it before. Why couldn't we do it this time? And I think that the scripture implies this, um, but I think that perhaps these disciples were living in the valley wearing the clothes of yesterday's success And, and somehow in pride and arrogance, they thought to themselves, we can handle this. We've done it before. We can do it again. And we've cast out numerous demons before. This is not going to be a problem for us. We can do it again. Scripture says that pride comes before the fall. It's not shocking or surprising that pride is listed as the first of the seven deadly sins. I think it's first because it's prominent. I think it's first because it's prevalent. I think that all of us have to wrestle with pride. I mean even if we're humble we're proud of our humility i think all of us wrestle at some level with pride and arrogance we got to intentionally deal with it it's it's kind of a it's a kissing cousin to original sin original sin is wanting to gain godly wisdom independent of god wanting to be wise And have God's wisdom, but not have God's rules and regulations. That's original sin, wanting to be your own God. Well, right next to that is this whole concept of pride. And I think that perhaps those, those disciples, those disciples came to this situation and they thought to themselves, we got this. I mean, we've done it before. We can do it again. We can, we've we've got this. It's not too big. We can handle this. And I wonder sometimes that if you and I ever find ourselves in the chaos of the valley and and we experience things and we attack them with our own pride. It's extremely tempting for the preacher to say, I can preach on Sunday. I've done it 2,000 times before. It's tempting for the choir members to say, We can sing that song. We've done it before. It's tempting for the church member to say, listen, I can go to church today and I know what's going to happen because I've been there before. It's tempting to get to work and say, I can handle that problem. I've handled a problem like that before. I can raise that teenager because I've raised one of them before. I can ace that history test because I've aced the one before. I can handle that sin in my life because I've handled it before I I can handle that struggle I can handle that heartache I can handle that scenario I can take care of that problem I can handle it why because I've handled it before and sometimes you and I are living in the valley and we're clothed with yesterday's success I think that Mark puts this story at this spot on purpose. Not only did it happen in this uh, chronological order, but it's significant that it happened in this order. You'll recall that it was Peter in Caesarea Philippi who declared, you are the Christ. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the high mountain, and there he's transfigured. And what Peter had confessed, heaven confirmed. And if you know who Jesus is, then you know how you ought to live. Let me say that again. If you really know who Jesus is, then you know how you must live. If you know who Jesus is, then you know how you must live. If you know that he is Christ, then you know you are to live with a desperate dependency upon Christ my Savior every day and in every way. That's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. Because if you know that Jesus is Christ, then you'll know how to live with a desperate dependency upon Christ my Savior every day and in every way. A desperate dependency. See, these disciples should have fallen on their faces in humility, but instead they fell on their faces in humiliation. Why? Because of pride. Because of pride, they thought, we got this. We can handle this. And they tried and they failed. What do they do after they failed? I bet they tried again. And after they failed, I bet they tried a third time. I bet they kept trying. And that's why the scribes are pointing fingers at them. And that's why they're coming back at them because they're so humiliated and they're so embarrassed. And yet they're so angry and they don't know what's going on. And the moment they can get alone with Jesus, they come up and they say, why couldn't we do this? We've done it before, Jesus. Why couldn't we do it? The answer Jesus gives is he says, this one can only come out by prayer. At the heart of prayer is a desperate dependency upon Christ, my Savior, in every day and every way. I mean, the reason we pray is because we're desperately dependent on Christ, When he says to the disciples, the reason you couldn't do it is because you were trying to do it in your own power. You refuse to pray about this one. You refuse to, to cast this out. You refuse to call on my name. You refuse to realize who I truly am, for I am Christ. You heard what Peter said in Caesarea Philippi. I am Christ. This one can only come out by prayer. Prayer causes us and prompts us To be desperately dependent upon Christ our Savior every day and in every way. So this morning I simply want to ask you, do you have any only by prayer problems? Do you have any only by prayer problems? I mean, problems that can only be fixed through prayer? Problems that can only be fixed by Jesus showing up and doing something? Do you have any only by prayer problems? Have you gotten to the point where you say, you know what? I've tried to fix it and I failed. I've tried all my human solutions. I've, I've tried everything that I know what to do. But the problem, the situation, the scenario, it just I, I just can't fix it. Do you have any only by prayer problems? Maybe it's an only by prayer marriage problem. You and your spouse used to get along so well. You don't know exactly what's happened over the years. I mean, if you really stop and think about it, you realize, yeah, I know, life happens. You know, the job, more work, the children, more activities, Uh, they're getting older, more things to do, more activities of the kids, more travel ball, more things at school, more things that take up my time. And so because of that, we've just kind of grown apart. What used to be such fiery romance is now cold and dead. We could go days without talking to each other with any meaningful conversation. And you realize that there's something just not quite right. You need to do something about it, but you don't really know what. Listen, there have been times when you all have had bumps in the road before. And and you just kind of get through it. You just kind of break through. It just kind of, over time, everything just kind of gets better. So it's been fixed before, and you're certain and confident that it'll be fixed again. just hasn't been fixed yet. You got an only by prayer marriage problem. Maybe you got a, you know, only by prayer parenting problem. I mean, you don't know why, but it, it, it's like your, your children are from a different planet now, and you've known them all their lives. <laughs> and and there have been times when they've disobeyed before, but, but now it's different. There have been times when something's not gone well, but you've corrected it, and and you've been able to discipline them, and you've been able to do something to grab their attention. But now, but now they're 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 prodigals. Maybe they're even outside your house, and maybe they're still living in the far country, and 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 you wonder what's going to happen. Are they ever going to come to their senses? Are they ever going to come back? Oh, my friend, you've got an only by prayer parenting problem, because that scenario can only be fixed with a desperate dependency upon Christ my Savior every day and in every way. Maybe you have an only by prayer work problem. Listen, it's been tough at work before. You've been able to handle it. You've just kind of been one to grin and bear it. Do you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps? You just work harder, put the nose to the grind, everything will be all right. But but now it's just, it's overwhelming what the problem is. Maybe it's a dead end job and you thought certainly that God would open up another door of employment, but it hasn't. It's still, you're in that dead end job or, or maybe you feel like now they're, they're, they're kind of pushing you, uh, toward the exit door. They're pushing you, uh, to resignation and, and you think to yourself, I'm not ready to retire. I don't want to resign, but you feel that pressure. It's a constant pressure and you you realize that monday morning you're going to go in and it's going to be pandemonium and it's going to be chaos and if you could avoid it you would but you've got to go because you got to pay the mortgage and you got to provide for the family and so you're really stressed out about it there was a time when you had a boss you could talk to but this new guy you, you can't talk to him at all you were up for the promotion but larry from accounting he got it and you have no clue why larry got it larry has a terrible work ethic you don't know why he got it, but he got it. And you really needed that because the bills are piling up. They're not getting less, they're getting more. And you wonder, you, you've done all you can, you, you've used all your charisma, <laughs> but it's just not helping. Oh, friend, you just might have a, only by prayer work problem because you have to approach it with desperate dependency upon Christ, my Savior in every way and in every day do you have any only by prayer problems friend if you and I know who Jesus is he's Christ if we know who he is then we ought to know how to live and the way we live from this story is with a desperate dependency upon Christ so here's my last question are you desperately dependent upon him don't answer that too quickly Are you desperately dependent upon him? I don't know if we are. I mean, if we were desperately dependent upon him, I think we'd be here every time the doors are open. Yet even our most faithful people are here 50% of the time. If we were desperately dependent upon him, I think that we would read our Bibles numerous times a day and allow that Bible to read us numerous times a day, but I Get the impression that sometimes we have to dust off our Bibles every seven days when we bring them to church. If we were desperately dependent on the Lord, I bet that there would be some sobs of sin, that that we would be broken over our sinfulness, and that we would sob that that the carpet would be steer, uh, tear stained. Oh, but many times I get the impression in your life and in mine that we just kind of justify our sin, and we excuse it away, and as long as our sin is not as bad as somebody else's sin, then everything's okay. Oh, my friend, are you desperately dependent upon the Lord? Because if we were desperately dependent upon the Lord, I think that we would tell lost people how to be saved every day of the week. Are we desperately dependent upon the Lord? Oh, because if, if we were, oh, we would have camel knees. That's what James, the brother of our Lord, was called camel knees because his knees were so callous because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer and i wonder sometimes if we just give a perfunctory prayer unto the lord or if we're desperately dependent upon him what would it look like if you and i were desperately dependent upon the lord every day and in every way what would that look like would it look like the status quo would it look like what we have or would it be something remarkably different If you and I were desperately dependent upon the Lord, I think first and foremost, we have to agree that we have some only by prayer problems, that the only thing that can fix it is Jesus showing up. And so if we know who Jesus is, that he is Christ. If we know who he is, then we know how we must live. And from this story, you and I must live with a desperate dependency upon the Lord, our Savior, every day and in every way. This is Jesus and this is how we must live before him. I think that is why the disciples failed. I think that's why I fail. I think that's why you fail sometimes. It's because we try to go at this Christian thing in the pride of yesterday's success. And Jesus is telling the disciples, this problem, this issue, whatever it is that you got, it's an only by prayer problem. For you and I must have a desperate dependency upon Christ, our Savior, every day and in every way. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, today we give you this invitation and help us just not to allow it to pass by and go right over our heads. But Lord, today help us to, help us to uh, wrestle with you. Uh, help help us to to see those things where where we are arrogant and and prideful and help us to see areas where we just need to be desperately dependent upon you and oh father i pray that your altar is full i pray that people come to a saving knowledge of the lord i, I pray that um individuals come and, and be part of this church. And I pray that we walk out of here realizing that we can't take another step. We can't take another breath without your power infused upon our life. And Lord Jesus, we need you. Oh, we need you every single day, every single hour. So Lord, let us walk out of here with a desperate dependency upon Christ, our savior. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen.